All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. Title to our message this morning is The Mortification of Sin. Remember, as you're turning there, the wonderful promise that the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children. We ask that you would help us now, like newborn babes, to long for pure spiritual milk, that we may grow up into our salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So if you're just now joining us, thus far in the narrative, God has unleashed nine plagues upon Egypt, punishing them and their gods for not releasing Israel. Now remember that being all-powerful, God could have released Israel on day one, but his greatest desire and the world's greatest need is to see his glory. That's what life itself is, is to taste and see the glory of God. And so the main thrust of the Exodus account is just that. He tells Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16, but for this purpose I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Exodus is about glory. Passover is about God's glory, and the greatest display of this glory is God sending his son into the world to save sinners, and that's precisely what Passover is. They were to bring a lamb without blemish. Jesus is the lamb without spot or blemish. That lamb was to be roasted in the fire. Christ was roasted on the cross under the fiery wrath of God. 
That lamb was to die so Israel could live. And likewise, that's our case, that Christ substituted his life in our place that we might live. The destroyer cannot touch us because the blood of the true and better Passover lamb has marked us forever. So that's what God was up to in the Passover. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. And now we move to this feast of unleavened bread. And I imagine some of you, as we are reading that, you're like, what the heck? How is this ceremony of leaven and unleavened and bread and days, and how is that relevant at all to us today? Perhaps that's just something that was for old times, right? It has nothing to do with us today. Wrong. That's, that's wrong. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is actually a picture of the entire Christian life after salvation. Uh, what do we do now that we're saved by the Lamb? How are we to live? Are we to continue to live like the Egyptians? No. The lesson is that we're to put away the old leaven, that sin that we were once enslaved to, and live as free men and free women. That's the, the, the gospel, right? If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So, that is our big idea then this morning, that being saved by the Lamb of God means that we now must mortify or kill our sin. So let's begin then with our doctrine. And there's a lot here, so I'm just going to ask those questions, who, what, where, when, why, and kind of just go through the text quickly, okay? So who? Who is this feast directed to? Well, it's directed to uh, the congregation of Israel. It's directed to the church of the Old Testament. What was their duty? What was their duty? Well, their duty was to celebrate a seven-day feast after Passover. That's in verses 14, 15, and 17. Now, uh, definitionally, uh, well, let me just ask this first. What do you think of when you think of a feast? So definitionally, a feast is a religious anniversary characterized by rejoicing. It's not fasting, it's feasting. Uh, the Spanish word uh, fiesta comes from the word uh, feast. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul calls this feast a festival, and he says we are to celebrate the festival. So the point here is that this was not a dour, glum, morose holiday. So if you're, if you're looking at this and thinking, oh man, that must have been awfully boring. That, that is not what it was. It was a holy party. Okay, so that covers the who, that covers the what. Where? Where was this feast to be held? Well, we'll see later in Exodus 23 that this feast was to be held before the Lord God. Uh, which would have required travel uh, to wherever the tabernacle was located. So once Israel gained possession of the promised land, they would eventually be in Jerusalem, and all males and their families would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So once we get to the Gospels of the New Testament, we read in Luke 2.41 that Jesus' family traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. 
Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. Covers the who, the what, the where. How about when? When was this feast to be held uh, and for how long? So verse 14 says that this was a memorial day to be kept throughout their generations as a statute forever. Now, technically, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, technically, they're two feasts, but they actually overlap on one another. Passover is the 14th day on the first month of Abib, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread runs from the 14th day to the 21st. So these feasts were to be kept yearly as long as Israel remained a nation, which is why it picks up in the New Testament. It was their annual celebration of independence. All right, what about why? Why did God command um, them to celebrate this feast? Well, verse 17 tells us this is a celebration of God rescuing them out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. And then the last question is how? How were they to celebrate it? And they were to celebrate it in three very particular ways. Number one, they were to abstain from all work except for preparing food on the first and the seventh day so that they could hold a holy assembly. We see that in verse 16. So God wanted them to rest from their work so that they could celebrate his work. Two, the second how, how they celebrated it. Secondly, by abstaining from eating leavened bread. That's repeated in verse 15, 18, 19, and 20. And then thirdly, they were to celebrate it by removing all leaven from their homes. That's in verse 15 and in verse 19. And so then this is where we arrive at the heart of the feast. Um, it's to be celebrated without... Leaven. I mean, there's no doubt that leaven is what is in view here. It's mentioned nine times in the passage. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, so the question is, is what does that mean for us? As we've seen in previous messages, uh, the Exodus is very typological. It teaches us spiritual truths through types or kind of spiritual allegories. So what did this leaven represent here? Well, here's the glory of the scripture is we actually don't have to guess. Paul tells us what this means. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul tells us precisely what this means. Uh, the context here is Paul is rebuking the Corinthian assembly for not excommunicating the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. So picking up in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, we read this. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. He's referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread here. 
not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here, Paul tells us, leaven here, at least in this case, means malice and evil. It represents sin. But it also represents the progressive nature of sin. What, what does leaven do? What does yeast do? Well, it grows, and it grows, and it grows, um, and only a little bit is needed to spread through the whole lump. So he, here's the connection to this feast. The Lord is telling Israel, I have redeemed you through the death of the Passover lamb. Now, as you're leaving Egypt, leave that Egyptian leaven behind you that you've been consuming all of these years. Leave behind your old lives of slavery and sin. Uh, leave behind your old lives of immorality and idolatry. Don't bring that with you because it will only grow and alienate you from myself. It will corrupt you. It will ruin you. So that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. Our doctrine is that being saved by the Lamb of God means that now we must mortify or kill our sin. Uh, the Puritan John Owen says here about mortification, uh, to mortify means to put any living thing to death. To kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all its strength, vigor, and power. Because indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person, the scripture calls the old man. And that old man is to be mortified, end quote. Now, here's the beauty of Passover. At Passover, that old man was truly and really and actually put to death. The lamb was sacrificed and in that sacrifice, the old man died. As sinners, Israel was under the death penalty. The destroyer was coming through Egypt, and every firstborn under, uh, not under the blood would die. But once the angel saw that blood, it said, an execution has already taken place here, and the angel would pass over that home. So in the death of that lamb was the death of their old man, was the death of their old sinful life. And this is true of every single Christian. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, Passover meant that we were no longer enslaved to sin. So now the feast of unleavened bread comes in to, to play. How then was Israel to celebrate their being free? By removing every vestige of that former life, by removing Egyptian leaven. And they were to do this for seven days. Number of completion it signifies that this was going to be a lifelong battle. That's precisely what the Christian life is, isn't it? Isn't this, dear saints, 
Isn't this your greatest battle? You woke up with it this morning. You're in your seats. You're soaking in it right now. You're going to go home and fight against it today. This is the battle of the Christian life, to cleanse out the old leaven. And and this is repeated three times, multiple times in the scriptures. Let me just give you three. Right here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, if you're already there, this is the first proof. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Turn to our second place, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Paul says, put off your old self, your Egyptian self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then proof number three is Colossians 3, 5 through 9. Turn with me there. This is the last place. Colossians 3, 5 through 9. Paul uses the same language. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So for these Jews... Being saved by the Passover lamb meant they were to rid themselves of their old Egyptian way of life. And for us who have been saved by Christ, it means that we are to no longer live as we once lived, but to kill our sin, to daily kill our sin. John Owen famously said, always be killing your sin or it will be killing you. So that's our doctrine, that being saved by the Lamb of God means that now we must mortify our sin. So let's look to our duty then. And our first duty is is simply to understand that only believers, only those who are born again can mortify their sin. No one else can. Your congregation... The, the order of these feasts matter. But Passover came before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The lamb is slain before they are told to put away their former way of life. And if we get that order wrong, we lose the gospel. Um, the Lord is not telling them, and the Lord is not telling anyone today, look, if you put away your sin, then I'll rescue you. That's, that's not the gospel. What, what he's telling us is, I've already rescued you, so now put away your sin. You're already free. Be free. Unconverted men can never, can never put away their sin. 
They're, they're like that woman in the Gospels who had that discharge of blood for 12 years. What does the, the Gospels tell us? She spent all of her money, all of her savings for 12 years on doctors, and they could not heal her. Only when she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was she healed. Likewise, unbelievers can spend their entire lives trying to put away their sin, and it's all in vain unless they put their faith in Christ. John 6.63 says that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The man who tries to reform his life without Christ is, is what Jesus talks about in Luke 11, 24 through 26. Remember, it's, it's a parable. This man cleans up his house. He, he sweeps it. He puts everything in order. He casts out by his own power, by his own reform, this unclean spirit. And what does the unclean spirit do? He goes and he finds seven other unclean spirits and he comes back to the man and the latter state of the man is worse than his former state. A person who tries to kill their sin in their own power is worse than if they tried nothing. How can you say that, Pastor Josh? Well, think about it. What do you call persons who try to kill sin without Christ? Pharisees. Self-righteous. Moralists. you're here this morning, and if you're not converted, if you've not been born again, then hear me very carefully. Your main problem in life is not this particular sin or that particular sin. Your main problem is not that you drink too much or that you look at pornography. Your main problem is you. You were born into sin. You, you don't you're not a sinner because you do sinful things. You sin because you're a sinner. The rotten fruit is not the problem. The problem is your heart. It's the root. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can know it? Christ knows it. And Christ can cure it. And Christ can cleanse you, and Christ can make you whole, and Christ can raise you to life. So I would encourage you, dear unconverted friend, look to the Lamb of God. Abandon hope anywhere else. Trust Him. The Scripture says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our second duty then, it's actually twofold. Straight from verse 15, the first part is don't eat unleavened bread. And the second duty is don't even have it in your house. So first of all, don't eat unleavened bread. It's, it's repeated six times in our passage. The emphasis could not be greater. Children, boys and girls, do you remember what I said last week about what happens when you eat food? It, 
comes into union with your body. It becomes bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, cell of your cell, DNA of your DNA. So here's the issue. As believers, if we've already eaten Christ in the Passover, that means if we've already trusted him um, by faith for our salvation, then how can we also eat sin? Meaning, how can we come into union with that sin? How can we continue to live like Egyptians and say we belong to the lamb? First uh, John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. He doesn't mean physical world. He means the rebellious system against God. If anyone loves that world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone says that they belong to Christ, but they continue to eat sin, to come into union with sin, they make a practice of sin, they live for sin, the scripture says the love of the Father is not in him. Now, don't overhear me here. No Christian will ever be free from sin in this life. No Christian will ever be entirely free from sin in this life. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. No one is able to perfectly keep the law of God. The apostle Paul himself said in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this, nor am I already perfect. We are daily defective. Colossians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So we will continue to sin until glory. But we are not to come into union with that sin. We're not to come into agreement with that sin. We're not to say things like, well, nobody's perfect, and then use that as a cover to continue to sin. What happens if we find ourselves doing that? What happens if we find ourselves eating sin? Well, we're to spit it out of our mouth. We're to vomit it up out of our stomachs. That's what repentance is. We're turning away from that. Christians are not people who have stopped sinning. Christians are people who daily are spitting the sin out of their mouth through repentance. The second part of that charge then is to not even allow it into your home. Verse 15, on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Verse 19, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. One author says here that in the, in the later history of Israel, what they would do to prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that the father would gather the children together and he would light a candle and they would go on a search throughout the whole house for any little speck of leaven. And the idea here is that we ought to always be examining our hearts and, and, and search for any indwelling sin that we may be unaware of. Why is that so important? Well, what does leaven do? It, leaven grows. Sin has a progressive nature to it. 
One little bit of leaven can, can leaven the entire lump. Don't you realize, we, 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 we say this, we, we talk about David's great sin. David's great sin started with a little teeny bit of leaven. In, in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 2, he left leaven in his house. It was sloth. At the time when kings were supposed to go out to fight in, in battle at the time of spring, David stayed home. And that little leaven of sloth, it says that he was laying on his couch just basking in the middle of the day. That little bit of sloth led to lust on the roof. And that little bit of lust led to adultery with Bathsheba. And that little bit of adultery led to conspiracy with Joab. And that conspiracy led to murder. Sin is always progressive, just like leaven. We must never flirt with it. We must never keep it around, just in case. Children, boys and girls, imagine if you went to your friend's house and he had just a little, he had just a little rattlesnake. He had just a baby rattlesnake. And he didn't keep that rattlesnake locked up in his cage. He just let the rattlesnake go around the house wherever he wanted. <laughs> what would you say to your friend? You're crazy. Put the get rid of the rattlesnake. It will kill you. And what if they said to you, nah, it's just a baby snake. It's just a little snake. What can a little snake do? Children, little sins that are left alone are far more dangerous than rattlesnakes. A little leaven never, ever, ever stays little. If we don't kill sin, it will kill us. Finally, our passage gives us a warning. And the warning is repeated in verse 15 and in verse 19. If anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. To be cut off here means to be excommunicated. It means to be removed from the covenant people, to be cast out, to, to be delivered over to Satan like the man in 1 Corinthians 5 was. One author says here, the excommunication for refusal to celebrate the Passover simply confirms the foolishness of that man who cuts himself off from the atonement and chooses his own way of life and deliverance. This is not, this excommunication is not the action of a harsh God, it's, it's the action of a foolish man who says, I don't need atonement. I can live, I can do it my own way. If a professing believer continues to eat leaven, if he continues to join himself to sin, to live like an Egyptian while professing Christ, they must be removed from the church. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And, and dear congregation, may this never be true of us. May we, may we never return to the vomit of our former lives. 
and find ourselves outside of the covenant. So let's look finally then at our delight. On October 13, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crashed into the Andes Mountains. 45 people were on that flight. It was a soccer team. 16 people survived on the top of the Andes Mountains, and they were there for 10 weeks in sub-zero temperatures before they were rescued. Uh, I wonder how many of you have either read the book or saw the movie. For those of you familiar, it was the diet of these people that made this story uh, especially unique. In order to survive, they ate the bodies of their dead. So their friends and fellow passengers that were on the plane, they ate the dead ones, not, not the living ones. <laughs> Just making sure here. Um, <laughs> it'd probably be more repulsive to eat the live ones. But um, as repulsive as that sounds, uh, that's what was required, uh, eating human flesh. Now, what may seem unrelated, just track with me here. Thomas Chalmers wrote one of the most important sermons in the last 500 years entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, he demonstrated quite convincingly how our souls work. It's not enough to be told, stop sinning. The desire for sin can only be overcome by a greater desire. My dad calls this replacement therapy. He, Chalmers says this in the opening paragraph. He says, quote, There are two ways in which one may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. First, either by demonstrating to the heart the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that it is not worthy of it. Or two, setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one, end quote. So Chalmers goes on to demonstrate that that first method, just stop sinning, here's the stupidness of sin, that never works. He says the human heart must have something to cling to. To only do the work of negation, he says, is to leave the heart in a state which to even the heart is unsupportable. He's saying that our hearts must feast. God has put eternity into our hearts and something must fill it. Just like those passengers that were stranded on top of the Andes, the reason why they ate the dead bodies is because, well, they needed something to eat, didn't they? 
That the point is that in order to put away sin, in order to, to get rid of it, it's not enough to tell you how bad sin is, how destructive it is, how dishonoring to God it is, how miserable it is. That, that is only the work of negation. That kind of work leaves the heart in a vacuum and it's unsupportable. It leaves you stranded on top of the Andes mountains and you will eventually succumb to sin. You will eventually have to eat something. Those dead bodies look like a horrible meal, but you eventually will eat. I mean, think about it. Think about it if that that plane crash landed and on top of the Andes, there was a five-star hotel with a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Would they have ever eaten those bodies? No. No. The power of a greater affection would have destroyed their debased appetites. Beloved, that is precisely what the point of our passage is. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich Food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. When God is calling us to put away our leaven, put away the old man, it's because he has already prepared a far greater meal. It's why the Passover precedes the feast of the unleavened bread. We already have a lamb to feast on. So consider five feasts that God has prepared for us, that empower us to put away the leaven of sin. These feasts we would call the normative means of grace that will replace your appetite for sin, not by negation, but by giving you a greater meal. So feast number one. Feast number one, the gospel of the lamb. The gospel of the lamb. What did the roasted Passover lamb accomplish for you? When Jesus was put forward as a propitiation for your sin, your relationship with sin has forever changed. I know that you wake up in the morning and you, you, you go to bed at night and you have regret and you, and you feel horrible for your sin, but guess what? Your relationship with your sin has been completely changed. In God's eyes, you have been made entirely righteous. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. It doesn't matter if you understand it. This is the logic of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven. That's what we've been saying. Now listen to why. Why? That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Dear saint, you've already been unleavened. The leaven is gone. Before God, before the angels in heaven, before the demons in hell, before the whole cosmos, you have been declared righteous, unleavened before God. Your sin died when Christ died. That's your legal status, that God has pardoned you of all of your sin, that he has declared you righteous in God's sight 
only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. Feast on that. Feast on your status that you really are unleavened and your love for sin will be diminished. Feast number two, the word of the lamb. The gospel of the lamb. Secondly, the word of the lamb. How do you feast on the gospel of the lamb? By reading and meditating and memorizing the scripture, the word of the lamb. Sin loses its power when you feed yourself the word. When was the last time you, you felt what Jeremiah says? Listen to what he says. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Get into the word. And that's what you will feel, and sin will become repulsive to you. Commit yourself to daily scripture reading. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Daily time in the word will transform your mind and lessen your appetite for sin. Feast number three, the prayers of the lamb. The prayers of the lamb. Prayer is a mighty weapon against sin. The problem is, is that we often find little or, or no delight in it. It's so hard. It, uh, we get a few sentences out, don't we? And then we, we, we run out of things to say. And we often fail to see how this is a means of grace to fight against our sin. But dear congregation, here's this little secret that God has given us a prayer book to use. It's called the Psalms. And everything that you could ever want to pray is found in that book. So start praying the Psalms. Pray the Psalms and you will find power against your sin. Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You want words for your prayers? Go to the Psalms. You'll find power against sin. Feast number four, the songs of the Lamb, the songs of the Lamb. Our hearts were made to sing. Even unbelievers know this. This is why uh, music in the secular world is so powerful, because our hearts were made for music. And we live in an age and we live in a place where you can listen to Christ-exalting music every minute of the day if you want. Plug into the music of heaven and find a source of strength against sin. Listen to how we're going to sing this song in just a moment. Dwell on these words. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ through me. 
And then feast number five, the gathering of the lamb. The gathering of the lamb. God is so wise, is he not, that he has given us a Sabbath, one in every seven days. The Lord's day, this is a a day of feasting on rich food and well-aged wine. Hebrews 6.4 says that this is the time when we taste the heavenly gift, when we share in the Holy Spirit, when we taste the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. So commit yourself, loved ones, to never missing a, a Sabbath unless you're sick. Even if you're out of town on vacation, find a local church. Don't miss feasting on Christ in the singing, the praying, the preaching, and the sacramenting of the word, and you will mortify your sin. So dear prayer of the Lord, this is how we put the leaven away. This is how we mortify our sin, not by telling ourselves, stop sinning, but by feasting on the Passover lamb in the regular means of grace. Number one, feast on the gospel of the lamb. Meditate on it regularly. Read books on the gospel too. Read the word of the lamb. Put it into your heart. Hide it in your heart. Number three, pray the prayers of the lamb. Pray the psalms. Number four, sing and listen to the songs of the lamb. And then number five, always attend the gathering of the lamb on the Lord's day. Celebrate the festival because you are already unleavened through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this day is a day of unleavened bread, that it's a feast, that, Lord, you have removed our sin through Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, now you have declared that we are free. So, Lord, help us now to be free, not returning to our former lives, but to feasts now on the true and better Passover lamb, that our lives would be marked by greater and greater conformity to your son. Lord, if anyone is in here who is courting a a small rattlesnake in their hearts, in their homes, in their lives, Lord, convict them. Restore the backslider. Give them a better meal. God, we are so thankful that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Help us now to sing the songs of the Lamb.